Hello everyone and welcome to the Comics Pals Book Club series where once a month your favorite pals discuss one of your uh, favorite comics at length so that you know what's good and worth reading. Books like Mouse, All-Star Superman, and most recently Spider-Man's Life Story. This month, the Citizen Kane of our industry, Watchmen. If you like what you hear, be sure to listen to our flagship show wherever your podcasts are sold and listen to our review series on the HBO Watchmen series. And be sure to follow us on social media and ring that bell on YouTube. Anyway, when my pals looked up at me and shouted, host this episode, I looked down and whispered, all right. (laughs) (laughs) We have a... We have a full crew today. We have That's uh, it, Phil. That's it. Three years into this, that's the pinnacle of your opening bit. I don't know that it gets better than that one. <laughs> uh, we have uh, President Petey Nixon here, who just you just heard from. <laughs> <laughs> Time to get to my secret underground place. Yeah, and then Ozzy Sean Diaz. <laughs> wow, what God an honor. Damn. <laughs> uh, Dr. Man Marco. Hello. Definitely the most likely of us to hang brain. Uh, yeah, boy. I didn't even think of that. Uh, my least creative one, the geriatric night owl, Kelty Mason. Oh, yeah. His last name was Mason. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm your host, Phil Bastis. You know, I have to say that I think if you were watching the Watchmen television show... Who you assign Dr. Manhattan to may have been different. Oh. That's all I'll say. Oh. I mean. Let's say no more on that. Let's who's got the bigger there. penis? That's what I. That's oh, what you listen. have to judge it with. Or the bluest penis. All right. We're, 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 we're <laughs> supposed to be covering Watchmen, not penis size. All right. Let's, the two go I hand said, in hand. <laughs> I said blue penis. <laughs> well, mine's not blue. <laughs> Dabba dabba die. Don't choke hard enough. Sounds like it's Marco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's our little okay. <laughs> here's here's my little preamble here. Uh, I don't know what you can really say about Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' 1986-87 classic that isn't cliche at this point. It was obviously a game changer, changed the way a lot of people perceive comics, changed the way a lot of people write comics. Has been a central, controversial piece in the subject of <coughs> rights and publishing. Uh, needless to say, there has been a lot written about it. And there have been a lot of spinoffs and adaptions, most recently the HBO series and DC Comics Doomsday Clock. Now seemed like the best time for us to put our two cents on this classic. So, we'll do the best we can to cover as much of this book as we can, because there's a lot to say. So without further ado... Wait, wait, I'm sorry, we're not going to go through each issue panel by panel, because that's what I signed up for. Oh, we man. fucking could. We really could. Anything less seems disrespectful. Well, listen, like the last <laughs> line of the book, I leave it entirely in your hands, my reliable co-hosts. Well, hope it's not entirely in our hands. You did agree to host. Nah, nah, you guys got this. Do the heavy lifting. All right, Sean, you want to... <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, uh, sure, why not? Anything to talk about the book at this point. <laughs> okay. So, Jesus, thank you. Here, here's, here's, here's my how I want to open the discussion. I want to know what each of your relationships were with this book prior to rereading it. So, Kale, why don't you tell us? Prior to rereading it. This, this time. time, yeah. When's the last I, time you had reread it then? 
Uh, I would say it's probably been five or six years, probably when I was doing my master's. Um, I think I sort of fall into this camp of people who get annoyed at the mainstream, uh, the, the popular thing. And with Watchmen's, uh, with, with the Watchmen movie and sort of the co-opting of uh, Rorschach and the the popularity of Watchmen, I I am always the person who sort of downplays how important the book is or how much I like it until I read it, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then as I read it, I go, man, fuck, there's a reason it's here. <laughs> hilarious what about you pd um yeah i mean i would say that watchman uh was definitely a formative book for me which isn't like a exactly a provocative statement um but i think similarly to the way that the industry reacted to it at the time it came to me at a, a pretty important point in my comic reading you know um life where I was getting back into comics as a teenager and, you know, I was like reading Ultimate Spider-Man and, you know, like a few other like just base level like Marvel stuff that was going on um, that I was enjoying. But I was starting to um, want a little bit more and I was interested in reading like some of the great works in the medium and like looking for stuff that was deeper and a little bit more adult and um, Watchmen is certainly both of those things. Um, so, I mean, I've read it. I think this is the fourth time now, and the last time I read it was probably similar to Kale, I think five or six years ago. I want to say when I was probably like 20 years old, maybe. Hmm. Um, so it's been quite some time since I've revisited it. And uh, I think like most great pieces of art, Watchmen is one of those books that um, I take away something different from it every time that I read it. And I notice things that I didn't notice previously. Um and uh, yeah, so I mean, I think I think it, it is really a work that stands the test of time. And I think similarly to Kale, um, but without the cynicism, it, I think it's one of those things that when you go back to it, you're surprised to find out that uh, your memory of it was as accurate as it was. Mm. Because I think there are a lot of things, especially things that you think of as being formative, um, that you, you know, you apply a lot of rose-colored glasses to it whether that's either about its quality or even just like your emotional attachment to it right like what it meant to you when you read it or something like that and and i think watchman is one of those examples of a work that really does uh hold up and does earn its place in that pantheon there's a reason that it's looked at as uh, as you said the citizen cane of the medium I, I think that that's earned for a lot of reasons you know um and it, it's uh it's it's always a treat to go back to it for sure. Sean, what about you? So, I was a late comer to Watchmen. I only read the book because I saw the trailer for the movie and thought it looked incredible. Uh, I didn't really know anything about it, but I picked it up and read it, and I was amazed. I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought it was incredible. And then I watched the movie, and I fell asleep in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like uh, Wonder Woman with you. Well, sounds like about 70% of the movies <laughs> I go see. But I actually really do enjoy the movie. But that aside, 
I've read Watchmen several times since then. My most recent reread prior to this one was actually just around the time the Doomsday Clock was coming out. Mm-hmm. And I love it every time. I think this time, the thing that struck me most immediately was how well it's written. And I was able to take that in more, I think. And um, I'm really excited to talk about it because, quite frankly, for as big and popular as it is, among my friends who read comics, this is not a book we talk about. Hmm. So this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, uh, for me, I haven't read this book in 11 years. I read this right before the movie came out, and I haven't touched it since. And it, it, it speaks more... Is that the book. only time you had ever read it? Yeah, I've only read it once. Wow. Wow. But, Whoa. I um I don't really uh rewatch or reread or uh reconsume things very often. I, I kind of want to move on to something else. Um and so rereading it was a crazy experience. Uh so I'm also uh I I I really liked it, but you know, I was, you know, I don't know, 16 years old when I read it last. So it was a, a very different experience this time around. Uh what about you, Marco? Uh, uh, this is a book that I come back to every once in a while. So I think the last time I read it was maybe two years ago. Um, but I, I think similar to every to how everyone else has sort of felt about returning to it, you know, it it strikes me as a great work every time. Uh, every time they go back into it, um, the way it's written, uh, the way the characters are built out, and the way it examines a lot of uh the the sort of tropes that it tries to to present um and yeah i think i i think i was excited to to get back into this book specifically because of all the of the watching media currently Mm -hmm. Uh, so i've kind of been on that hype train um and so diving into this uh, i was diving back in Uh, i was pretty excited um and yeah it was one of the the earlier graphic novels i'd ever read uh i was into batman and alan moore stuff yeah so well, that that kind of leads into what uh my my next question that kind of ties in with this. Was the first time you guys read Watchmen kind of a transformative experience with your kind of relationship with comic books? Like, did it change how you perceived comics after you read it the first time? Not for me. <clears throat> I had already kind of been back. I had already gotten back into comics and. I had read a lot of Spider-Man stories at that point that had been a little bit like I had read like you know things like um like Craven's you know Last Hunt and stuff like that that were like deeper and a little bit more you know or like you know Long Halloween so I like I had ha- I had like experienced works that were contemporary or um, inspired by Watchmen so it wasn't necessarily like oh my god I've never seen anything like this before but it was more, I think, just being taken back by the quality of it and, like, the execution of it. I don't think I had ever, like, at that point read a story that had as many layers as Watchmen does. And, you know, I remember reading it and, and being kind of, like, annoyed by it at first. Like, being like, like, why is there all this, like, shit in the back and like what is this story with the these pirates have to do with anything like i I, or like why do we keep going back to this newsstand and it was like as it started to build on itself 
like I I got more and more out of it, and like that was a click moment for me of like realizing, um, that I I guess I was looking for more layered, more nuanced stories like this. Uh, I think for for me, I hadn't uh, I hadn't been reading a lot of superhero comics. I had just started sort of exploring the graphic novels and the comic space. Um, I knew that I had liked Alan Moore. Uh, I think the first thing I'd ever read. Uh, either comic or just from him otherwise was V for Vendetta. And then that led me into Swamp Thing and then that led me to, to Watchmen. Uh, so for me, I sort of knew him as, or knew the book as a product of Alan Moore, less so as sort of a product and commentary on, on superheroes necessarily. Or like, oh, so, this is like the most influential comic ever. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. It's like, it, it was like, oh, like, like I, I get it because of the quality and the craft. But in terms of what it means to the super to the superhero comics, I, I, I didn't I didn't have that connection. So it's not into, it's one of the reasons that I go back to the book every once in a while. It's because like as as I continued reading either superhero stuff or just more comics in general, it to, to what you mentioned Pete, it, like every time you read it, it gives you something deeper, um, and especially the more superhero literature you sort of touch upon, you get to see more of what influences this book. Um, but for me, it it impacted the way that I started reading comics in the future because I thought that that comics were sort of more of that were more of the grittier it was more of a grittier take because um, at the same time I had been reading the Dark Knight Strikes Back um, uh, some other Batman and stuff uh, I think similarly the Long Halloween so I sort of sought those kind of comics out and it took me a while to to go towards other other things and other kind of genres within superheroes yeah i'm with you man <clears throat> that yeah. whole like period of like dark edgy 80s comics yeah, was very yeah. influential on me as like a 16 year old boy <laughs> i actually don't really feel like Watchmen influenced me much at all um it was, it, it was like i could recognize that it was good but i don't think i was able to get what it was putting down and then also mm-hmm. because i read it after you know a bunch of books that were inspired by it what it was Mm -hmm. doing wasn't that wild because it had been i'd seen it already it probably wasn't until i went uh, and took some classes at comics experience and started you know writing my own stuff that i went back and was like oh wow these are these are some things that i can actually use or wow that's why this works or you know things like that, and so it influenced me more later. Um, and every time that I read it, I'm able to recapture that feeling that I had probably the second or third time mm-hmm. that I f- that I read it and finally started to figure out what was happening and why it was so good beyond just this story is a good story. Mm. I think, yeah, I think. Uh... I'm very similar to to Sean in that I I don't think it was hugely influential in how I looked at comics immediately, but I think uh, similar to the way I sort of feel about Identity Crisis when I when I read that the first time that was one of the first books that really opened my eyes to really what you could do with storytelling. So like in the case of Identity Crisis, you know. I, I really looked at that and went, "Oh my God, you can do that!" Huh? Yeah. In in the in, you know in the case of 
you know, you can add a whole bunch of stuff into this, uh, uh, you know, into this universe where the, you know, very literally the, the time is in your hands and it, it, it is whatever. Um, and the good guys don't always win. And I think that's what I really took from, from Watchmen the, the first time. Um, and I think I think it's it's lasting impact on me is is the way I uh, perceive memory. Um, memory is a, a huge um, uh, topic that I, I am fascinated by, uh, especially in, in, in my writing. And uh, I think Watchmen was uh, very uh, uh, influential for that. Sure, I mean we can. There's. Uh, so many directions we can go with this at this point but um i'd i'd love to pull on the thread that kale just laid out there because i think one of the things that stood out to me reading the book for the first time and it's you know one of the major themes of watchmen is like kind of moral ambiguity yeah you know and that was something that i i remember really like leaving a major impression on me Yeah, so everyone always describes this book as uh, a deconstruction of superhero comics. What do you? How do you? How did you guys interpret that in the context of this book? Well, when I think deconstruction, and granted, this might be <laughs> this might be influenced by how I read Watchmen, but <clears throat> I think it's it's trying to like take a look at a well established. Uh, medium or like not necessarily a medium a genre that that is that has tropes that people come to expect and not necessarily just subverting them but also following them to logical like endpoints you know without like idealistic scenarios or a world where you know powerful people are always just and those sorts of things right it's uh like you know, trying to kind of put a quote-unquote realistic worldview to things that don't necessarily lend themselves to that, right? And, like, in the world of Watchmen, like, you can draw clear analogs between the the, the characters that we follow here and, you know, their predecessors in some cases and the characters that, you know, make up the modern pantheon of superheroes, you know, and have for a long time. And, you know, each one of them is kind of like a twisted mirror image of one of those characters. What was the question again? I was asking about these characters being deconstructed. I guess I guess to right. put it in a more clear direction here, uh, just kind of diving into the book. So the book kind of takes place in this alternate 1980s America. Uh, Nixon's been president for five terms. Uh, and this once robust kind of superhero community um, of like Minutemen from the 40s um, have kind of gone away with the Keen Act. Um, so the book kind of starts off uh, with the comedian dying. And I, um, he, he's, I, I think that's a character that didn't really uh, make a huge impression on me when I read this when I was 16, even though he's like a focal point throughout the entire thing. But him being kind of this linchpin of the narrative... Uh, he like kind of sets the entire tone for this entire story that everything is kind of like, like the very idea, like these superhero comics are kind of a farce. That's like very much driven home in issue 11 as well, which was something that I didn't really appreciate as much until this read through. 
and like how he really is kind of he he as a character and how people describe him is very representative of like what it feels like the book is aiming to do. Um, yeah, I actually really like the fact that the book is constructed around this, well, it starts with a murder mystery and then spins out of that. Yeah. Because it, it, it makes it really easy to jump in. Um, and you, you really are, especially in the first issue, coming at things from Rorschach's perspective as he, he, he thinks that there's this conspiracy to get rid of whatever costumed heroes are left and you get to be introduced to all the remaining heroes uh, through his eyes and it's actually perfect because not only do you get to see what they're like but you get to see that they think he's a creep yeah um and it, it it just alan moore really was cooking with gas when he came up with that as the way of introducing us to this story uh and setting up this mystery that Especially when you read it back, it's like, man, sure it was Ozymandias. Like, who else could it have been? Smartest man um, in the world. But that first time, it's like, yeah, I have no idea what's going on here, but you're fascinated. He, it, it works, too, because, like, we don't know anything about this place at all. But um, right. when you have this character who, in some way, impacted every, like, costume character's life over the last 60 years... Uh, it's a really useful technique for like kind of exposition to world build because I think it's in the second or third issue when it's at the comedian's funeral and you know you have uh, the second night owl and Doctor Manhattan and uh, and uh, Rorschach there you kind of get like a little piece of what the world is was like over the last sixty years through each of their lens or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in in this though, Rorschach is kind of set as our our, our uh, you know character that we move with, and I think he's kind of like an interesting juxtaposition to like Batman because like you see Rorschach at night and he's a detective and he's trying to solve things and he's got that you know growly voice, but like he's not a billionaire playboy by day. He's a dude that carries a, a sign around that says the like the end is nigh. He's clearly just like a nut. Yeah, and I love that the first time you read through this, he's clearly present all over the place yeah. with mm-hmm. that sign and you know wherever else, but you don't know that it's him. Yeah, yeah. I I think um, it's funny too because I you know Rorschach's journal is one of those things that's like so. Like, again, it's so well explored, right? But, like, I really think it is, like, one of the most effective uses usages of, like, this kind of narration in a comic. Because, like, you get such a good understanding for Rorschach's, like, psychology and his, like, worldview and the, the very, very black and white lens through which he looks at the world through those more than really anything else. And, like, I think that's why, like, so many people look at him as the main character, right? Because it's, like, he's the character that I feel like we get to know yeah. on, on the deepest level, despite the fact that he's probably, you know, uh, maybe excluding Dr. Manhattan, the most difficult one to understand. Well, well, he is the main character. So it's not it, it's not surprising that you would feel that way 
have you know have this relationship with a character like him when he is front and center. His 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 journaling like really establishes the tone of the book too because it's all really just cynical. Everything is cynical. His his worldview. He talk uh, you know like his mask. Everything is black and white, and like there there is no moral ambiguity because I mean that's kind of like the like what the book's about is like the grayness of morality, but for that character which is like you know. Uh, silver age superhero where he's like only right or wrong he can't compromise his worldviews with what's happening in the book what i'm sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say and so what as you're reading everything he's saying where he's talking about like the whores and like the communists and the liberals it, it when you get to parts of the book where it's like talking about night owl and and silk specters but like burgeoning relationship it puts like a really gross lens on it where it's just everything feels run down and pathetic right and and i think that the point you make there right is rorschach is such a good like poster child for how alan moore writes these characters too because like to your point like he is a black and white character in a story about gray morality but his black and white is also like totally twisted and backward you know like he's this like right wing misogynistic homophobe like he's a you know he's a angry violent dude and like his values are totally out of whack you know it's like alan moore says a guy like this can't exist in the real world without real trauma and you think about how he perceives women through his mother right and like from from a young age, this is a person who's been traumatized, and so he goes out at night and beats people up for it. One one thing that really hit me th- on this read was when he's talking about the uh, the dress that he makes for uh, Kitty Genovese. He says that um, yeah, uh, she didn't want it, uh, so he looked at it and he thought it was beautiful, so he took it home, and he started cutting it up. So that it didn't look like a woman, mm-hmm. yeah, and that that really stuck out to me this time. That really really drove home his uh, his his attitude toward women, frankly. Yeah, and I mean, it's like something you know, that's like supported in all the like supplemental literature too, right? Like they even the, the commentary about him as a child is that he's like noticeably shy around women too and stuff. Like, there's all these little digs, you know, that like paint that broader picture i think rorschach gets this is gonna sound weird but i think he gets a bad rap like i'm not a particular fan of rorschach in the traditional sense of being a fan of a character uh i look at him very similar to the punisher where he's not the guy that i want to hang out with i don't really want to watch tv with him or go out for a beer or anything like that but in this world that is so screwed up the way that he goes about the mission itself disregarding everything else like what he's like as a human being and just how he responds to the screwed up nature of this particular world i think he he is doing the right thing and he does have the right agenda um even though i mean he he's a brutal person but they're all brutal 
for some reason, though, when it comes to Rorschach, people respond worse to his brutality than other people's. But he's no different than any of them, including Dr. Manhattan, who just blows people up. He can handle his problems in any way. He chooses to take people's heads off. I think I, I, I wonder if it's because we we sort of see his opinions um, and we're sort of uh, put face to face with the way he thinks. And I, I do agree with you. I, I, I do think his his mission is, you know, uh, noble, I guess, uh, you know, no matter how brutal he goes about it. But I, I think it's it's his language and his opinions that really uh, sort of drive home the sort of um, it adds to that brutality in 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 the uh, the the mental space. Yeah, I, th- I think for me it, it's less about his actions as Rorschach than it is the the disdain with which he looks at like, both criminals and people who he just, like, disagree, like, finds morally repugnant or whatever, like, the, the, you know, he compares, like, like, he's fine to go and, like, break, you know, a criminal's fingers or whatever, like, I don't give two shits about that, you know, like, that's whatever. It's, it's more, like, the, the attitude that he has towards, like, um, you know, like his landlord for being a, a a hooker, you know, or something like that, where it's like he he like views those things as like uh, as like almost equal or something like that. Like it's I think it's the the lens through which he views the the world that makes him come across that way for me, and and I think a lot of readers more so than like any one action he takes as a actual vigilante. I I think I think people gravitate toward the fact that he has kind of a black and white morality. Like I think people are are naturally drawn to people that have just very um laid out views on the world, but you know, I I think Alan Moore deliberately writes him as kind of a hypocrite and 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 some of his 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 senses of morality is being kind of warped. Um, so like he always calls people parasites, but he breaks into people's houses and eats their food or more pressingly into Pete's point. Um, you know, Silk Spectre will talk about how the comedian tried to, um, you know, sexually assault her mother and, and Rorschach will say, well, he was a war hero. He's a patriot. And she was a you know yeah. prostitute or whatever. Like, Right, but like he'll kill a guy who's a a multiple confirmed rapist, and it's like, well, that's black and white. Like he deserves to die, but it's like, well, why doesn't the comedian de- deserve yeah. to die? Because you look up to him, you exactly. know? Like exactly. Yeah, it's like he's a he's a total fraud. Uh, I don't know. I think <laughs> I think if he if he really saw those those like if he saw equality between you know, prostitutes and rapists or murderers or whatever else, he'd be out there killing prostitutes too. And he doesn't. I, well, I wonder... The, the, that made me think of of the... Um, I, I don't know if it's a, a particular biblical phrase or whatever, but there is, you know, there is an idea in uh, Christianity that, like, all sins are the same. Um, so I, I wonder through the book, uh, 
Rorschach repeatedly says, especially after his, uh, uh, you know, his his big Rorschach moment, the thing that makes him Rorschach uh, all the time, he says that there's no God. Um, do you think there's sort of lapsed, uh, I guess, ideological beliefs there? I, I, I guess you probably don't, Sean you know, given what you just said, but, uh, you know, murderers are the same as prostitutes and, you know, all of it's the same in the eyes of the Lord. Well, I think, I think it all comes down to the same incident for him. And, um, it's alluded to multiple times. And I forgot what issue happens where you finally see it like nine or 10 or whatever, but, uh, maybe it was earlier where, um, you where Rorschach brutally like witnessed the brutal murder of a child. Uh-huh. And like you know, that's when him and Night Owl aren't partners anymore, and things start to change for him. I mean, I mean, if good Marco, I was just gonna say, if I mean, if he considers himself a righteous force, then that is what a righteous force does. To Kale's point, you know, you you blow through whatever it is that you need to in order to be able to distinguish between good and bad, and that's it. His dialogue changes, but when you look back in the past, uh, he... well, but but it is because of that that inciting moment. Yeah, but but it's because of that because he mentions that you know at some point Kovacs yells out and dies. Yeah, he doesn't see all sin as the same though, because if he did, he would kill everyone who he sees as a sinner, and he don't do that. Yeah, I mean, the to your point, Sean, the, the interactions he has with Moloch kind of, like, solidify mm-hmm. that, right? Like, he calls him out on doing things that are illegal while he sees him, but he's like, okay, like, get a gun license, right? He doesn't kill him. So, yeah, yeah, I, um, like, I, I definitely see what you're saying, Sean, um, and I think, I think in large part it, it i guess it does really come down to like the point that kale laid out which is that like we know too much about rorschach's politics i think to not to not criticize him in that personal way i think that's and we don't know those same things about any of the other main characters which is why mm. he probably gets that attention we know that about some of the other minutemen yeah but you know uh and ultimately, his uncompromising uh, worldview is his undoing. But and at the same time, this is a guy who seems like he's in constant pain. So when he doesn't allow himself to be complicit with with uh, Ozymandias's resolution for world peace, uh, he dies for it. Yeah, which I mean, like, you look at who Rorschach is, and I feel like there is really no other path for him anyway yeah you know he was a warrior and he was gonna die a warrior's death you know like that was that was it like sean said his dedication to his mission is absolute and you know like if if it wasn't this it would have been in another five or ten years or whatever when he inevitably slowed down and somebody shot him or beat the shit out of him or whatever or he'd end up back in prison you know like that's that's how rorschach ends do you guys see him as a as a martyr in that in in that scenario? Then, I think he certainly does. Hmm. You think Rorschach does? Yeah, I, you look at look at. Uh, I, I I I do think that on some level because I think that you look at 
the the way he goes into their final mission, right? Like he fin- he ostensibly finishes his journal and sends it off and is like, "Hey, like this is it. Like we're probably gonna die," and he doesn't have any question about that, right? Like he he says that he's going and doing this without fear or regret because that's the mission. That's not martyrdom. Wouldn't you say so? I don't. I don't mean that in like the charged way that people sometimes use it. Like, I mean, like he's dying for a cause. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I guess. I don't. I don't know. I think. It, I think. I think he was. He was di- like, if Batman were to die, would he be a martyr? If Spider Man were to die, would he be a martyr? Like, he was doing the mission. Ah, uh, soldiers who die in war, martyrs. I. I think that's a little different though, just because, like, in this scenario, it's not like if, if Batman were to die like making a principled stance about morality then like i would say he was a martyr but like if you just die in the line of duty like that would that's that's like a slightly different thing right like rorschach choosing to sacrifice himself for his you know for his ideals basically for for his to maintain his worldview like i think that is martyrdom on some level and i think that's reinforced a little bit by the survival of his journal uh, well, in a sense that okay, so he died on a, uh, for a principled cause, but it wasn't for nothing because ultimately for him the truth's still out there because he 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 distributed it. Yeah, he achieved his goal, and he becomes a you know like a symbol for it. Yeah, uh, presumably, obviously, the ending is kind of left to interpretation of what happens next. So, um, <laughs> not for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, brother. for me, Sean and Marco. I mean. Um, it ain't canon, boys. Uh, let's talk about the other character that kind of uh, is the central, uh, a central focus in this book that a lot of people always kind of talk about, uh, which is Doctor Manhattan. Um, we're introduced to him when Rorschach goes to visit him to inform him of the comedian's death, uh, and we already see that there's kind of a strange relationship between him and the Silk Spectre. Uh, people kind of chastise her for just you know, uh, appeasing a walking H-bomb. One thing I think that's interesting about him is how he says that we're all puppets, including himself, but he can see the strings. Um, But he's our only character that has anything resembling actual powers. Um, And after after, uh, he's framed for giving cancer to his friends and people that were around him, he leaves for the moon. Uh, Mars. Excuse me. Mars. Sorry. <laughs> the only Fucking surface that has an fan. actual smiley face on it. Well, um, what do you guys, what What are your impressions of Dr. Manhattan in the context of this book? I like Dr. that Manhattan he, is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I like that he serves so many purposes. He's, he, you know, he's, he's an allegory for so many things, which makes him a character that's very, unique and and he's used in a lot of creative ways by more uh specifically being able to explore time being able to explore time uh, identity to an extent but mostly the the trope of the the actual super powered superhero and that's something that has always fascinated me um and I, i i think it's i think that the character is introduced in in a way that sort of just sets the the tone for what 
what he is because you immediately can, can sort of see that he's per perhaps detached from reality, um, which sets up a lot for the future. Um, and how there are still human aspects to him yeah. um, that, that permeate and uh, that I think Ozymandias uh, was also sort of kind of banking on uh, in a lot of ways. So th th there's, there's a lot just in terms of how he serves the story, but then what he also represents in the story that uh, more uses masterfully. Mm. Yeah, I think Dr. Manhattan's the best character of his type. Mm -hmm. What is his um, type exactly? The poles. Post-human. Mm. You know, I... I uh, I think that Dr. Manhattan is like a, a really, really expertly explored view at the, the concept of a, of a, a, a man ascending past manhood because, you know, like to Marco's point, like he's obviously, um, he's an allegory for a lot of things and he's used as a plot device often, but I, I think he's most interesting on, and you know, his solo issue where we're looking at, mm his perception of time and um, the kind of relationship he has to John and like how that is kind of separate from himself, but it also isn't, you know, and like to Marco's point, there are these kind of like flashes or glimpses of his hum of his lingering humanity. But, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's a, a, a a door that now that it's been opened, like it can't be closed, you know, and that tether mm. is, you know, over time more and more removed. And I think like that was the thing in this rereading that stuck out to me the most was seeing how through the flashbacks, you can see how John's transition from John to Manhattan was gradual, you know, that like he wasn't, uh, that his new perception didn't immediately remove his humanity. It was something that it was stripped of him over time. Uh, Dr. Manhattan is, I think the, the character, like if Rorschach is the, the character that people gravitate towards the most in terms of resonating with him, Dr. Manhattan is probably the character that people are the most fascinated by. Mm. And yeah. it's for good reason. I think the fact that he is powered when no one else is, really always stands out for people. Uh, I was speaking with a friend yesterday who's watching the Watchmen television show, and he mentioned to me uh, a similar thing. And that was something that struck me as well. I've always loved the fact that Dr. Manhattan is so unique and different from everyone else, and yet in a strange way, there's... A lot of similarities in my mind between him and the other characters uh his the the callous way that he handles conflict is uniform among all the watchmen um his his reason his his level of reason is on par with ozzy or i should say ozzy is on ozzy's is on par with his in that Ozzy's, uh, uh, Dr. Manhattan can see the reason and agree with why Ozzy would choose to kill millions of people. Um, and and it, it almost, because Manhattan agrees with it, 
or sees the logic of it, it almost makes it okay. And that was something that made me think when I first read this book. Wow, Ozzy is a, night, a, a nutcase. Like, how could he do something like this? This is awful. But when Dr. Manhattan, the person who's the most removed from humanity, says, well, I kind of see the point of this, it made me go, oh, all right, I guess I do too. And I love him for that as well. Well, yeah, they're like, it's like this utilitarian thing where it's like the need of the many outweighed the need of the few, where like, okay, uh, a few million people in New York die, but in return, you know, the survival of humanity might continue. It's a, it's a, it's a heavy cost, and it's one that most people, you know, could not make because of the immediate ramifications of it. But for Doctor Manhattan, who sees all of time at the same time, it, it doesn't matter to him. Nah, I'd push the button. It, <laughs> what, I, what, what I think is most interesting about it is the way that we view those two characters so differently. Like, mm. Ozymandias is portrayed as being maniacal because he should understand the human cost of his actions. Whereas, like, you just gave Dr. Manhattan a pass, right? Because he looks at things differently because he exists outside of time and, and our scope, you for, know? For him, it's like... You know, it's the way we kind of talk about, like, statistics in a war. But that's the thing. It's the same thing for Ozzy. I know. Right? And that's, that's what I think is so interesting about it, right? Um, is that Adrian is looked at as, like, conniving and, you know, like, you know, like all, all, all of these basically negative ways the to villain. say that he's smart. He's a villain. He's, yeah, he is a villain. villain. But, but, but it's interesting, right? Because, like, he's a villain, but, like... His goals are still altruistic. Mm-hmm. You know, he just doesn't have the same. He's not placing value on any one human life. Right. And I'm not saying that that's right. Um, but again, I think to the point I brought up earlier, that's what makes Watchmen so interesting is that like it's not black and white. It's that I think there's a problem with every character's point of view in terms of like what the right thing to do is, you know. I would go as far as to say there's a problem with us feeling the need to always analyze what is right. Hmm. Sure. That's a great point. I'm right. I mean, like that's uh, the whole, the whole point of the story is the gray areas. Right. You know, and that like, um, to take it back to what Sean was saying before, right? Like, I think like you said, right. I wouldn't want to hang out with Rorschach. I think a lot of things about him are morally repugnant. I also see him as a sympathetic character, you know? And I think in the same way that you can look at Ozzy and call him a villain and say that he's a megalomaniac, like, you know, like, he did his research and his goal is a good one. You know, it's not the end of the, of the species, not the end of life on the planet. Like, he's not, you know, like, yeah, granted, he's going to position himself as the leader of the rebuilding progress and, and process and make himself super rich. But, you know, it, it's – there. there's – there's white and and you know or light and dark I should say uh, to every one of the characters like moral positions. Yeah, I, I want to go more in Ozzy, but the last thing I really want to kind of say on Manhattan at least is for me I guess I think uh, the way I kind of read him this time around is I I kind of saw him as Alan Moore's statement on Superman in a way 
Yes. I I because like okay, Superman is this character with all these powers and he can do anything, but it, he he's never not grounded in his ability to help people and and sympathize with the human experience. But for Manhattan, who who sits on this pedestal on Mount Olympus, you know. The longer he's there, the more difficult it is for him to rationalize with people. I think I think of when he he reminisces over the comedian killing the pregnant woman in Vietnam and how he did, just didn't do anything about it, which is kind of his mo. Is like over time, it's just all these value judgments end up being the same for him. What I think is so interesting is how, like, I feel like his own internal rules are so strange because like he's like well i can't affect the future like i can see the future but i can't affect it but like simply by existing and doing all the things he does he's he's affecting the future but but to him he's just he's just playing his part that was pre-laid for him there is no free will everything is predetermined and so when he does something it was already predetermined right I love, I absolutely adore that aspect of his character. It's and so it's compelling. frustrating, and I love the way that it frustrates the shit out of Lori. <laughs> it's so, uh, well, it's not funny, but it's, you know, I just enjoy it. Um, She's a really because, effective point of view character, like, to foil against him. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to her later. But, like, it, it frustrates her to no end because this is not, this is not any way that a human would, would interact and the only person who ever seems to be really comfortable talking to Dr. Manhattan is uh, Ozymandias mm-hmm. because they're the most similar. And Dr. Manhattan almost appears to view him as kind of a contemporary on some level. The closest thing to a contemporary he'll probably ever encounter. Yeah. Um, he does. And I, I really – go ahead. He does say something like that too in that flashback like where yeah, he meets he him for yeah. the first time. He's like he was the only I... person that interested me. Yep. But but my favorite thing, my favorite interaction between Doctor Manhattan and Ozzy is after Ozzy Mendias, you know, does what he's gonna do and he tries to kill Doctor Manhattan and fails, and Doctor Manhattan is just like I'm just I'm just I'm disappointed in you because uh, I was <laughs> dumb. After everyone leaves and it's just those two, he says to him, you know. Uh, what's the exact the exact verbiage? I can't remember it. Uh, he says basically something to the effect of, uh, "Actually, I got the, I got it up." Uh, John, wait before you leave. I did the right thing, didn't yeah. I? It all worked out in the end. And he's he's trying to ask God yep. for validation, yep. mm-hmm. and God will not give him that. And it's that moment right after where we see Ozzy looking back that we know. That inside of him, for all the all the words that we've thrown out about what kind of a man he is, he does not feel right about what he did. Mm-hmm. And because God wouldn't tell him it works out in the end, he can't let his guilt go. Even though he knows he was right. I love that. That's like because the, again, the what is right? Between... Yeah, that, that's like the, the difference between him and, and, and Dr. Manhattan is that Dr. Manhattan, there is no like guilt aspect to it with with ozzy he's still very human and for him like he's still not sure and what i like what alan moore does for ozzy is the whole black freighter part of the book 
Because ultimately, mm-hmm. it really feels like it's just about Ozymandias. Because ultimately, like uh, the pirate in that book, they both wind up marooned at the end, sacrificing all their friends and relationships, building a boat out of them, uh, and winding up alone. Hmm. Before we uh, transition over into Ozzy, if that's where we're going. Yeah, um, that's where I, I was taking us. I I got the version on Comicsology, which is the 2019 re-edition that has uh, that has the uh, the little corner box that says uh, now a show on HBO. Oh, so thanks for that garbage, DC. But in the back of it are uh, some of um, Dave Gibbons like character notes, and so he uh, he wrote uh, basically a, a short line for each of the characters and like their worldview and so for uh dr manhattan he wrote uh sees world as subatomic system and then for ozzy he wrote sees world as organism with him at center hmm. uh Perfect. so i just uh, comparing those two their 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 views i think are or at least you know from these notes their their uh worldview is very similar Right. But with They're Ozzy, just... he's still got that human element where he's he the world revolves around him. Right. And 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 maybe it's not even like a human element, it's just same systems. It's just the, the yeah. same systems that are at work, but you can whatever makes them up is replaceable. Like you can you can shift them out. It's like Sean, kind of talking using your example. It's like it's like Ozzy is a prophet to God, and God is Doctor Manhattan, and you know he looks to the heavens and he just wants to be right, but God doesn't tell him he's right. He tries to think like God because you know for Ozzy and Manhattan, it's like they're both these hyper rational people who can logic things out, but ultimately once you know the the the, the decision is made, that human factor, that emotional factor can't be ruled out because what's the actual cost and there's that splash page which is all the people dead exactly and and that is the the crux of the moral questions of the book dr manhattan does not experience those feelings they don't mean anything to him if he were asking me that question right and i agree with what he chose to do i might say you know what man you made the best decision you could have made. Think about all the people you saved generation upon generation. Dr. Manhattan doesn't care about that. He's not there to soothe Ozzy. He's just there. Yep. He just exists. And you cannot escape the human factor of emotion when we make choices. The right and wrong of it is so irrelevant, but we always get caught up in that because the righteousness that comes with feeling like you did the right thing oftentimes assuages guilt. But because he did something so catastrophic, he can't feel that. He cannot feel that righteousness because three million people died. Not to mention, it's it's interesting now that you now that you've kind of like cast Ozzy against Manhattan in that moral question, right? Like you also have to think about the fact that like because of the way that Manhattan views time and fate, like he never makes a choice. He doesn't yep. like if, from his perspective, he never makes choices. Yeah. Um, and he never did, by the way. And that's something that only struck me in this reread. John says that he always felt like people were making decisions for him. 
Mm-hmm. And that carries over into his life as Dr. Manhattan. It, that's interesting because in, 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 in history, um, in Calvinism, which is like a, a, a sect of Christianity, which really puts a lot of value behind predeterminism, saying that, like, yeah. well, God's already predetermined everything there's a lot of that well my life's already been the 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 road has already been laid ahead of me so there's like there's there's peace of mind when you don't feel accountable for your actions i think that that is an interesting analysis and it it works but the only element of it where it falls apart for me in my mind is that dr manhattan is not human so he's it's not peace of mind it's just whatever like it's not you know it doesn't even go that far sure yeah i think that's fair and i I think that's part of what makes him so compelling too because the fact that he flirts with humanity but truly isn't a human anymore like makes you have to evaluate like his actions and his worldview like on a super case-by-case basis um what's what's really nice about this book and i'm about to open it up a little further now is it feels like all the characters can be diagrammed against one another and so while manhattan kind of represents this cold logic and and ozzy represents this hyper hyper uh kind of rationality i i think of how they're juxtaposed against like night owl and laurie who really represent like this raw passion of humanity because i think of like Night Owl's impotence and, and what it takes for him to to kind of be like a virile person again. It, 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 that, that like kind of raw human element is like completely contrary to the sterility of like Dr. Manhattan. That's an interesting, yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think I had either because like when you when you said that, I was like keying up a joke for being like, well, yeah, what is what does Night Owl represent? I'm like, you know what? Damn it. You know what? You had it, man. You're ready to go. And it's funny because Laurie goes from this very cold, sterile, sterile, bad lover, even though this dude can do anything, to just like this raw, slubby animal. Like, that's a bad way of describing it, but, but it isn't because it kind of represents the chaos of life. Yeah, and I, I think it's particularly interesting that I think you're right that the that their romance is is presented as um, as passion, right? As being passionate, as like they describe themselves as young lovers, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, but like the kind of inciting incident, right? Like their first you know attempt at having sex, like fails because of Night Owl's impotence, and like even Laurie's reaction to that is so telling about. Not not just who she is, but also like the kind of human interactions that she's been missing. Yeah, exactly. You know, like she comes from a total place of non judgment because she like relates to that of like of like not like not feeling right because she's been living a lie for not just the seven years she's been with John, but like even arguably since you know like like most of her childhood, right? Like she never got to choose her own identity for herself, you know, and like. All of that plays into, like, her character and how her character acts as, like, a foil to every other character that she has, like, a significant relationship with anyway. And I think under that that same light, uh, Phil, because I hadn't hadn't thought of it that way, but, like, you can sort of see them 
uh, Lori and Daniel as like hope in humanity in the sense that they, they, they represent those last pieces of what people hold on to the, those human elements. Um, and, and they, they can find it anywhere. They can find it anywhere and, and they need to find it anywhere. Cause that's sort of where you, you form those relationships and what uh, to them makes life worth living. Yes. This is like, where I wanted to, this is what, this is a real central thought I had in my rereading here is okay. So this is a book about a deconstruction of superheroes, whatever that means. These two characters don't find a spark of life until not just finding each other, but donning the cape in cowls again and being superheroes. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's Alan Moore saying that, yeah, even though the comedian is 100% right and that this is all foolish and silly and we're not really making any real uh, changes in life, clearly because we're counting down the doomsday clock, it's fun. Superheroes are fun. And that's kind of like what they ultimately represent because they, they... become happier when they just kind of embrace the absurdity of it all and, and it's control they they give you control over a situation where without the mass they are nobody they they don't they're nobody right they're literally nobody they're they're impotent but with the mask on they they go back into this this role into this they have this energy because of what it represents to them i think that that's that um first night out too right where they save those people from the fire oh yeah that that reminded me of the conversation that um we had around actually our last book club life story where sean was talking about how a lot of these kinds of stories um talk will kind of take the angle that like being a superhero is bad right that like you're not really making a difference and that there are like better things to do but like you're objectively making a difference when you're saving people's lives, mm-hmm. and I and I think in the same way that the point that you're making there about what what that means to say about superheroes, I think that is also emblematic of it, right? It not only like ignites their you know their personal passions and like their their spirits again, it also like they're out there making a tangible difference in a world that is like consumed by chaos. Also, I wanted to, to comment on what Phil said about the comedian's perspective about how it's all for nothing. I, I looked at that as like, I don't know if this is what was intended, but this is the way it landed for me, was um, that a lot of the things that we do in life are bullshit. Yeah, you know, 100%. A lot of the things we do in life are, are meaningless and don't have, they don't, they don't, we're not, us podcasting here right now reading this comic book we're not changing the world but it's fun to do yeah it's interesting it, it's it keeps life going and and it keeps it from being monotonous yeah. and so in that way it's not a joke it's not you know it's not a waste of time um and that's and it's funny because especially at the time at which alan moore would have been writing this i think most um, more adults than not would have said that you know, something like reading comics would have been a waste of Frivolous. time. And we still confront, we're still confronted by that today. Yeah. It, so that's, what's, that's, what's really interesting here. And this is, this was like a big philosophy thing in the mid 20th century is like the seesaw of nihilism, which this book kind of confronts a lot of, like you see it in just the early issues of how these characters are, are, are living post keen act and, and embracing like the absurdity of like, well, 
maybe this doesn't matter in the big picture uh just like you said sean with us podcasting but like it's providing meaning we're we're the ones putting meaning to it you know and that's i think what al moore is trying to say with this or was trying to say when he wrote it i think that's really driven home too by hollis mason's book Mm -hmm. i i think that that probably drives that theme home like better than any one part of the like the actual story um because i feel like it's so focused on that you know like it 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 definitely like i mean it does some other world building as well but i i think um having that perspective from like a hero who's like not necessarily like like just in decline or something like that like he's like twilighted and like he has a positive perspective on things because it kind of worked out for him you know like yeah like it his career went out with like uh, a sputter but like he retired and you know has this quiet life and he's you know he's happy and he's doing all right I, so like yeah th- I, I think that uh, cool um i i think that really like ties a, a nice bow on that that broader theme um I think I think another good example of this is Laurie herself because this is a character who feels like I, I kind of wanted to save her for last because I think she's the most interesting as just a character and not kind of a, a archetype or whatever because she's someone whose whole life was thrust on her by other people at least that's how she felt but then when she learns the truth about the comedian being her father, it's that Rosebud moment for if you're going to borrow another Citizen Kane reference because her whole perception of everything changes. When she learns this, like that sand palace on Mars falls apart as well. Her whole understanding of herself, you know, is gone because who is she now? And how she emerges from all this uh, in her reemergence in vigilantism is is i feel like the whole it's it's making sense it's coming out of life warts and all but happier you know i i actually feel like lori doesn't get as much uh development i guess as she probably should could have or should have um but i think that what you just said outlines earlier I was saying how um, all these characters were so similar to Dr. Manhattan but we perceive them as being they're so similar but we perceive them as being so different there's nothing different about the way that she saw herself prior to learning about the comedian being her dad and the way that John saw himself prior to dying or you know becoming more than human or however you want to talk about it they're very they they were on the same life trajectory she learned something that erased her and then another person sort of came out of that he got erased and then you know became something else after that. damn that's good sean i didn't think about after, that after that moment too just to sort of illustrate that uh when she uh when she uh when she and manhattan are in funnily enough manhattan <laughs> uh when they uh she grabs the gun right and then they go to uh karnak 
uh, Ozzy's um, Arctic for- Fortress. Um, did you guys notice how uh, she had a uh, a makeup streak along her face that was the same shape as the comedian's scar? Oh, oh as she no, was yes. shooting him. Eagle-eyed readers will notice. <laughs> Um, and then, so this, yeah, this different person that she becomes also carries over uh, to the very end of the book, which is like uh, the one of the last panels or two, where she and and the newly disguised Dan Dryberg are discussing their future, and yeah. she's going to continue being a superhero, but this time with a mask and a gun. Yeah, yeah. It's, what what do you think that means, Cal? Uh, well, it means that. Uh, Contrary to what Sean said earlier, the HBO show is canon. So, uh, no, I think I I, I think she uh, I kind of think it means she's tra- trading one identity for the other. Uh, and w- and what I mean by that is trading her mother's identity as the Silk Spectre to her father's as the comedian. Oof, I want to talk about what happens in the HBO show know, dude, so badly, me. right? <laughs> I'm trying so hard to keep it divorced. <laughs> but uh, just analyzing this alone, it actually is, in my mind, not a happy ending. No, because it so, shows yeah. that she's still unable to forge her own path. Yeah. She's still clinging to the, the, the identities of her parents and their tragic history that created her. Uh, and and I don't know what it would take for this character if this story were to continue to to find who she is, divorced from the identity of her parents. But maybe you can never become divorced from the things that forged you. Um, you know, Doctor Manhattan feels that he's just playing life out. You know, the way the way it's preordained. And in a sense, maybe that's just how we all are living, right? Like we can't escape. The tragedy and trauma that makes us who we are. She thought she had when she learned this, you know, in, in information about who her dad is. But then she went right down the the road that would lead to her, uh, uh, you know, replicating him in a, in, a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So this revelation, arguably, you know, if you follow the the sort of life path of the comedian. You know, if she if she's gonna follow that as opposed to following her mother's footsteps as the the Silk Spectre, arguably it made her a worse person. Hmm. <clears throat> it's like she embraced because uh, the comedian's whole thing is everything's a farce, nothing matters or whatever, and it's like a part of her embraced that aspect because it's it's like a, like prior to this series even starting, the very notion of the comedian being her father was like unfathomable. And the fact that it became a reality, uh, uh, you know, it's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. Well, I mean, she she adopts that worldview before she finds out that he's her father. Like in her conversation with Manhattan, when she is like throwing her mother's pictures out and everything, and she's like, she starts she starts mirroring a lot of his language in terms of saying like, like I believe she literally says like it's all a joke, like that kind of thing. You know, and um, I think that it, it all just it, it's like a gradual growth into that 
right? And I, and I think it does speak to the idea of destiny and fate and in the way that perhaps Sean was talking about it, though, and less in, like, a biblical sense and more in a, you know, you are a product of your your environment and your upbringing, right? To that, um, the I think it's really interesting. So she's the only direct unless I'm mistaken, direct descendant of one of the heroes, right? Like, she's mm-hmm. the only two, as it were. Like, you know. Uh, and her experience as a hero is so different from the one that her mom had. Uh, even even though her mom experienced something so horrible and traumatic that, that the comedian, you know, attempted to rape her, she she still feels like it was a good time. You know, like, it was kind of fun. You know, she got to dress up and kick ass and, you know, do cool Support stuff. Support her daughter. Yeah. Um, the original Night Owl has the same, like, he has this way of looking at what they did there that was fun. And these characters who looked up to them and took on those those mantles went through hell and their lives sucked. And it's this the 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 difference of the generations. Obviously, we all understand already the comparison between like what uh, uh what would that be uh, golden age and silver age, sure. right? Yeah, and that's totally what you're supposed to get from that. But also, um, you know, generational trauma careful. in a lot of ways. Careful. You you well, I'm not gonna talk <laughs> no, about the show. Yeah, but, no, you're right. But, but, like, when you look at – so, Laurie is more affected by her mother's uh, – by the attempted rape of her mother than 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 her mother is. Like, go ahead. Can, can I take that a step further? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's never explicitly said to Laurie, I don't think, that uh, she was born out of – a, a real passionate moment between the comedian and and her mother. I think my my understanding of her view is that she was born out of that assault. And so I think I think uh, I think that. Well, it's not it's not expressed, but you can. I'm pretty sure she can math out that that timeline doesn't work. Uh, yeah, she actually says something to that effect. She says, "How could she have done that after he tried to, like she." She definitely. That's right. Yes. I, yes. She the makes words, a like, statement about intimacy. how those timelines don't line up. Then I would, I wonder if, I wonder if uh, Sally's feelings weren't fully uh, expressed, because my my view of it is that, you know, she probably thinks that the comedian is like a repeat offender as it were you know I'm, I'm, i mean i mean i i kind of got the implication that he might be i mean absolutely and 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 i'm not i'm not saying he isn't i'm just saying that he says he only did it once so maybe to her to her that's true uh I forget what my point supporting that was. <laughs> but yeah, what what I was saying was that she she inherits these feelings that are are not even I mean they're warranted, right? But 
her mom doesn't even have as strong feelings about this event mm. as she does. The way she talks about it uh, at the whatever it is, the home I guess that she's at, like where it's like you know, as you get older, like uh, the big picture starts to look smaller or whatever. Mm. I see. I I I've always taken that stuff that she was saying there as like not re- like trying to soften her daughter's perspective without telling her the truth because the truth is that she was born out of a loving moment but she doesn't want her daughter to know that the comedian is her father so she's not trying to tell her that but she's also not trying to have her feel so bad either yeah it's an interesting line she's trying to walk right and so as a result of this lie right uh laurie is forced to like live in pain that she doesn't necessarily have to feel um that comes from you know this generational thing but she's she's almost being coddled but 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 like she's being coddled but forced to feel this pain that she doesn't need to it's kind of weird yeah uh let's let's talk about the ending of the book uh for whatever reason it's kind of controversial uh the, just the very nature of it being like this manufactured giant psychedelic squid. Uh, how do you guys feel about it? I never liked it. Oh shit! I, Same I, I always hated it. I thought that the ending to the Watchmen movie was better. I enjoyed it more <sighs> until this very exact. Wow! Oh, and yay. the only reason, the only reason why that's true. Is because of the show. I know. That's the only reason. I edit that show, so I know. <laughs> that doesn't count. No, no, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. No, no, no. It's it's not because of anything that's said in the show. It's it's simply because of the way it was presented. When I read the comic book, it felt way, way too goofy. I couldn't jive with that. It, it just felt it felt ridiculous in this in the grand scheme of all these things. It felt so grounded. But when I I don't want to spoil anything for the show, but it's presented in a, in a way that it, it it allowed me to feel connected to it as a thing that could happen. Not a, not a thing that could happen, but something that I can feel something about, I guess. And then when I, when I saw it again here, I was like, I felt the devastation mm-hmm. more than I ever did before. Interesting. Does that impact your feeling on the ending of the movie? Uh, no. Okay. I've, I, I well, I'm sorry. Are you when you say that? Are you saying do I still think the ending of the movie was better? Yes. No. Now I am perfectly happy with the way that the book ends. Okay. Oh, okay. But I I can't say which is objectively better because now I've been I I've been affected by the show in such a way that it changes the way that I read the book. Then so I'll now I like this one more. Then I'll objectively say the movie ending was better. <laughs> ridiculous ludicrous why i i don't know like i i've never understood the problem with it because like i think i think yes the rest of the world of watchmen is grounded right but like dr manhattan isn't and it's driven home a lot like through granted like kind of indirect means but it's driven home a lot how much dr manhattan has changed the game and how much, like, 
he has made the impossible seem believable uh, and like that like something like that in this world like happening is believable and the thing is that like it doesn't actually happen so that's my whole thing is when people are like oh like it's so goofy and weird it's like well yeah like it's a manufactured event like you know like made to like feel like the escalation of the existing weirdness that has already plagued society you know if if you were right and dr manhattan's presence normalized weirdness then then ozzy's plan wouldn't have worked the reason why it works is because dr manhattan is a unique one of weirdness and for the reader i don't think go ahead i don't think what pete's saying is that it manhattan was normalized yeah i i think it's that he changed the game. Right. Well, you 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 said that Doctor Manhattan being in this world makes it so that people are are a little more used to seeing weird shit. That that's they'll believe it could happen is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's and I'm and I'm yeah. arguing against that. That's what I'm saying. That okay. Doctor Manhattan is a one of weird thing that people have gotten used to because he's existed already for what. 30 years or some some mm, number like mm. that he's been around for Something a long like time and also um as a reader we're we're accepting of dr manhattan because up until this point it's been what 11 issues that we've been seeing him seeing all his all these interactions that he has with humans and things like that it's a lot different and easier to accept that than it is to accept that a squid appeared in manhattan and blew people's minds and killed three million people because the explanation is a little bit wonky and it's a squid in manhattan (laughs) like it's 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 bugged out well i think that's the i think that's the point is that i think for alan moore um right he was trying to find something that would be so out of left field that it would end the cold war where if you were alive right now and a giant squid just killed three million people in manhattan people would lose their goddamn minds because it's like, what the fuck is happening? Yes. And people would contrive but, a narrative like, it must be aliens, I don't know. But the reality of that, right, like, that, if that happened in real life, it'd be insane, of course. But as a reader, that doesn't change the fact that it could still be weird as hell and and take you it took me out of the book every time i read this until now every time it clearly didn't work for marco either yeah it's the most controversial part of the book and you guys are certainly not alone in that right like so fair play i've just never understood like why that was such a sticking point for people yeah let me ask marco what's what is why is it a sticking point for you i mean frankly i I saw the movie first and i just that that painted my first experience of it and then uh reading it afterwards i i found that the the first ex, the movie version explained it a little bit better i thought i think i think for me I, the reason i i i i liked both uh they don't neither particularly bothers me i kind of see why uh Zack snyder would go for uh what he did I feel like for a movie and introducing it to a wider audience, it's a bit cleaner. 
Uh, so I, I, def- I get that. Especially in like fucking 2009. Yeah. Movie audiences were not prepared for this kind of weirdness. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean like Iron Man had just come out and like, you know, we, we just weren't, we weren't quite there yet. But, um, but for me in the book, I think what, what Alan Moore does in the back matter really helps inform that. You know, he, he talks about um, how Ozzy got his hands on the brain of a psychic and fed it recurring just uh, terrible images over and over and over again, and eventually it all just built. And then, you know, scientists and artists and writers or whatever came up with this creature and for whatever reason the teleport the teleporting didn't work so it killed it but the killing it snapped the the psychic brain that's for me uh at the point uh that i was when i read this the first time that didn't that was enough of a comic book explanation that i was fine with it um i i i i wasn't gonna bring this up but i i i think this is another pretty salient kind of piece when talking about Watchmen is the comparison between the movie and the book um it's like a really polarizing film uh i know sean you're a fan of it uh do you do you think it successfully adapts the book okay so the yes I do. I think that as as far as a, a two and a half ish or whatever hour movie can mm. get to replicating what this book does, yeah, um, is it perfect? No, I don't think you could really do that in a movie. Uh, at least not in my opinion. I would love to be challenged on that or or see it done, but I don't feel that that's possible because there's a lot of subtext there's there's you know back matter there's stuff that it would be really difficult to include they couldn't even include like the black freighter stuff Mm. you know they had to release it in a different way like i i i feel that that movie gets a lot of undue flack i think it was very cool looking it was very stylistic but it didn't lose the the core of what Watchmen is supposed to be uh to me for me for film I think that movie is very good. It can't do the like the deconstruction thing that everyone is always so aroused for. It can't do that <laughs> because that 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 wasn't really a thing at that time. We weren't mm. in as in the weeds as we are now with superheroes, and it's a different medium. Um, but I I feel like it captures the spirit of Watchmen very well, and especially up until that point. Superhero movies were not very good at capturing the spirit of the comics, and this one was. Um, does anyone disagree with that? I I don't say that. I wouldn't say that I disagree with that overall. I think my my major issue with Watchmen as a film is I think I I feel like it. Okay, so we're talking about the kind of ambiguity, right, of it all, of the ending of the book. And I feel like the way that the movie executes the ending, it feels I, – I, I definitely took away the message as a viewer um, that it, it 
sides with Rorschach, basically. You know, like, it, it presents him as the main character, as being, like, the morally correct hero. And I, I, that is the thing that has always rubbed me the most wrong about it, is that, like, I feel like the, by the nature of it being a, um, to Sean's point, right, like a two-hour movie that has to fit that, that you know, structure and doesn't necessarily have the room to explore all of the nuance of all of the story and its supplemental material and even a lot of the characters, like, I, like, I, I understand why it is the way that it is, but it, it definitely, I don't know, I, I think it's fine, but it definitely doesn't resonate with me as much as it did when I watched it the first time, like, as a teenager, you know, because of the point that Sean made. Like, I think in the context of when it was made, I was very impressed by it, but, like, in the very, like, saturated, you know, luxurious superhero media landscape that we live in now, like, I, I, I think it leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, just quickly, when was the last time you guys saw it? Ten years uh, ago. I watched it, I, I probably watched it about a year and a half ago. It, it was in college, I don't remember exactly how long ago, but it's, so it's been like in the neighborhood of like five-ish years probably quite some time yeah about the same for me like five five six years yeah what about you cal oh i, I haven't seen it since it came out yeah same um does anyone else want to weigh in on that okay i wanted to ask though to ask pete what is it about the ending that you feel casts rorschach as objectively right i i, I guess it's just like the the film trappings of it all you know, like, I, I don't necessarily know that it's anything that's, like, you know, like, changed dialogue or anything like that that, like, presents it that way specifically. But I feel like the drama of his death, like, and how it plays out feels very much like he's, like, positioned as, like, a martyr figure, right? Like, he's dying for the truth and everyone else is agreeing to this lie, you know? But that's true. Right. I know. But But I think that, like because of everything that you get from Watchmen, like, all the things that we're talking about, right? Like, this whole time about every character's perspective on the end event, I don't feel like that's as well fleshed out in the movie because it's a movie. And you get this very, like, this positioning of Rorschach and then the ending, you know, is, like, very similar of, like, okay, cool, like, I leave it in your hands, right? But it's, like, this... Rorschach's doing the end voiceover and it's swelling and we just watched him die for the cause and it's like I don't know it's it's uh I, I think it's a, uh, a more an issue of trying to adapt the work to the medium than like than maybe like it like being a conscious decision of Zack Snyder to be like I agree with Rorschach you know I, I would I would be interested to hear what you would say if you watched it again because I've seen it like many times and i've never felt like that I th it's it's almost the exact same thing ending and i think it's up to the viewer how they choose to interpret the the way it the way it goes down versus uh similar to the comic i'll have to watch it again i think for me what i the biggest thing i lost i think the biggest thing lost in translation between the two and i don't i don't necessarily think this is the film's fault is uh, the coloring of the book when when you read it the 
color palette is just so distinct. There's there's so many kind of muted, gross greens and yellows used to kind of pat it that I don't know you can translate in a in a in a blockbuster film. Like I, I know there are directors who would color a film like that, but I don't think that's how a Warner Brothers mass release film would be released. And that's kind of my nice little transition to talk about the art here. Uh, how do you guys feel about Gibbons' art? It, I love. Uh, I like that you start on the colors because the colors are probably my favorite part. It's such a pulp, comic feel. It feels like, uh, you know, a '50s, '40s story. And and, and it's funny because you have that pirate comic in that you know permeates throughout. Um, but the art is superb outside of the the direction that Moore gave and that Gibbons had to sort of follow. But he just captures so much. He captures uh emotion moments action like the the it's just outstanding and that's that's higgins by the way we should give him proper yeah john credit. higgins, higgins right colors uh yeah tre- tremendous tremendous colors i i think this this is a very uh beautiful book mm. and one of the first thoughts that i had when i when i was like gonna read this for the very first time was like ah I hate reading old comics because I don't like the art. Preach. But um, this book, like a lot of the books that are most celebrated from this time, uh, actually is gorgeous. And a lot of that does have to do with the coloring. I think the paneling of the book is, you know, everyone always talks about that. And it is phenomenal. But um, just Gibbons figures, like they're really really strong. Uh, and, And I feel like there are a lot more classic moments and panels that the book gets credit for like the moment where uh dr manhattan gets uh uh, erased in that that machine or whatever Mm -hmm. i always have loved that part and then when he's like that creepy uh brain with eyes or whatever real weird uh you know we've we've seen dr manhattan's like body so many times you know him in that godlike pose we've seen that a million times but that originates here and it is beautiful the way the way that it's handled and done uh i love all the costumes i think the the, the characters look great I, I feel like every single issue of this book has a few moments that you could point to that are uh gorgeous and we could we could do a whole separate podcast about the art and the paneling and the colors and all that and the color theory and everything else yeah, you, I think, like, you hit the nail on the head with the, the color theory, too. I think, like, that's one of the things that is most, not necessarily, like, impressive, but just, like, well-executed, because the book does have such a distinct color palette where it has these very, like, you know, harsh neons and then these very muted, pale, like, gross you know, like, kind of, like, grounding colors as well, and that, like, in and of itself gives it a very, like, unique style, but then on top of that, like, how it makes use of, like, red and yellow, like, whenever there's a, you know, a scene that's supposed to be tense, you know, like, um, in the the first issue, the first time that, like, we see Rorschach go out into the underworld, right, like, as soon as it's in the bar, like, there's, you know, it's bathed in this, like, 
you know, very like tense, ominous kind of red. And then like when we have the close-ups on the bartender and like it's that yellow and he's like, you know, got this fear in his face and he's sweating and, you know, like there's so many little moments like that that you don't think of, that you don't call out because they're not the brain or, you know, Dr. Manhattan sitting on Mars or something like that. But like it's it's like nose to tail every moment has substance and style you know and like yeah the as expertly crafted as the script is like it's insane how much lifting the art also does which is why it it stands out you know among the medium is that like it really is like kind of a a 10 out of 10 on every level it also speaks to how another thing that I think about is how challenging it is to create a design for a character that has kind of a broader cultural impact. But Dave Gibbons was able to do that with five or six characters. Their design of the core Watchmen characters are, are, are very easily immediately recognizable to broader pop culture particularly rorschach and and dr manhattan <laughs> the funny at the thing. same time but at the same time they're also very like muted they're not they're not over the top they make perfect sense within the world that these characters are in and i think that that's probably very difficult to do it's probably really hard to design characters that will stand out and be interesting, but also can't be Spider-Man, can't be Batman, can't have crazy designs. He did such a brilliant job on that. There's something minimalist about that. Yes. Uh, Pete, what were you going to say? It's fine. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else, is, what, what else can be said. Um, everyone always talks about well, the, the nine... The, the nine uh, panel uh, pages and it, it, it gives Dave a lot of opportunity to kind of cram a lot of stuff per panel, but it never feels overstuffed. He uses the space like very carefully. Yes. And also um, this book is in a lot of ways about time and memory and things like that. And the nine panel grid allows for the ability to control on the writer and artist and the, the the passage of time more than if you were to do you know if you do less panels a lot of times you have to skip moments but this book almost to the point of being slavish about it wants to show you these specific actions and moments that f- it makes you almost feel like you're seeing them unfold uh, on a, like on a screen, it's 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 not exactly like that, but it's very close to that. The uh, one of the moments where that really stuck out to me, like that kind of minutia of detail, was um, after Rorschach's. I want to say it's his first encounter with Night Owl, but it, it might be both of them. Even where he like he takes something both times, right? And like you see him pocket it while he's in the middle of a conversation, you know, and, like little actions like that. Um, that really do stand out. And yeah, I mean, I am a, a firm, firm believer in the nine panel grid. And like, obviously Watchmen is like the kind of, you know, the the most popular example of it for sure. 
I, I think my last question here, um, before we kind of begin to wind down, is do you think this book still holds up in 2019 on its own without kind of the historical relevance? So a lot of people, when they talk about Citizen Kane, which had a massive influence on film and uh and, and writing a film a lot of people have a hard time watching it because the movie's 80 years old uh people can still recognize like the historical significance but a, a, as its own thing it, it maybe doesn't resonate as well with you know certain viewers my, my question is do you think this still holds kind of the impact it does even though so many things are inspired by it now does the, yeah. I think, I think that it does because superhero comics are still a thing. Like people can go, still experience that, and can still go back to this and still understand the time periods. And even though the the history changes, the concepts and the tropes are still there. Um, this book doesn't capture. It captures a t- like a a time period, but more than anything, it captures a genre. And I think you're not gonna remove that genre from the identity of this book nor are you going to be able to remove that genre from popular culture so i think it it still speaks to it in 2019 because those comics are still relevant and even outside of that it still presents um if you you look at it just for what it was for the time period uh, you still see the remnants of that even now i actually i don't feel like Watchmen like so literally right alan moore if he were to sit down and and write something it wouldn't be Watchmen. it wouldn't be presented in this style or anything like that but there's nothing about this that says this is old this is outdated this cannot be done today this you know like it's not the same as you know for example comparing a movie that's in black and white to a movie that's in color uh because that was a revolution in film or a movie that's silent versus a movie that has you know uh speaking characters you you could like anyone can pick this up and take it for what it is with no historical context and enjoy it because it's not an anachronism. Maybe if comics were went the way of the dodo, or maybe if there were no superhero comics anymore, or something like that. But um, because everything is essentially still the way it was when this book was released, there's no reason why this should feel outdated the way that most of the books from that time period that we look at and hold up as classics don't feel outdated. Also keep in mind that this only came out less than 30 years ago, right? So it's not like it's been, or maybe it's about 30 years, something like that. Over 30 years ago. A little over 30 years. That's not that long of a time. That's like just over my lifetime. That's not that's so, not that long. Let me ask you this, Sean, specifically, because you mentioned this on the outside of the book club. Uh, why is this then not a book that you and your friends... Uh, kind of go back and talk about really because my friends are not the deepest of readers they they okay they don't they want to talk about you know like a lot of the stuff that we talk about on our main podcast the events the major moments the bombastic stuff that you know we talk about on the show because it gets clicks and because it's it's interesting in a pop way because of that you know i will always be able to get to hook people into a conversation about comics if i'm talking about batman versus watchmen 
I see. I think I think the thing that sets this book apart even more than its genre are its characters and its focus on characters. You you are made to care about characters who have almost no impact on the end of the story other than to make you feel sad that they're dead now you know uh, i'm thinking specifically of the the newspaper guy you know uh building the world and and sort of uh illustrating the the tension in 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 the air i think that i think that this this book is sort of outside the politics of it I think it uses it, illust- it uses the politics to illustrate the the tension and and the the rising uh, fear of of the inciting incident and the climax of it all. Uh, but I think, like you know, when I was sixteen and I read this, I didn't know anything about the Cold War. Still don't. But like, I get I get like the the underlying tension and the 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 tightness in my chest when you know everything is coming to a head because of the 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 masterful way that all of it is a cacophony of people that i have been brought to care about yeah i think issue 11 is is my favorite issue of the run and that's like where all of the things that have been building like finally come together and explode in that way and I think that that point that Kale's making there is one of many reasons why Watchmen is and continues to be relevant. You know, I think, like, it is a master class in the medium. You know, like, it, it, it is really well executed, and I think even if it wasn't an excellent deconstruction, even if it wasn't, you know, layered in, like, thoughtful political commentary, it would be quality because of those points and i think because it's all of those things and more that's why it it maintains its relevancy you know and i think that like to compare it to citizen something like citizen kane right like i don't mean to um i don't mean to make this as like a value judgment about citizen kane and i'm not interested in bringing that up but something like that is i think has more trouble translating to a modern audience because it's limited by like certain things that like are out of its control whereas like that's not the the case with comics you know i think old comics that are tough to read are tough to read because of like social expectations of comics at the time and watchmen is a modern work you know and and it's uh it was a progenitor of a modern movement that you know comics has never like deviated from you know, where in America anyway, where, you know, before that kind of age, like comics were softer, you know, like in the Golden and Silver Age, there was a lot more scrutiny about them and they were definitely marketed exclusively towards children or at least for the most part, right? Like superhero comics. Um, it wasn't until this era where we saw the kinds of stuff that you know, we're still seeing echoes of today. You know, a book like House and Powers doesn't exist without this era of comics. And 
you know, like that's, I think, a, another huge part of it. And to Sean's point, why there are a lot of books from this time period specifically that we hold today as classics that are still accessible. Uh, any other final thoughts on Watchmen? Well, you're going to ask us if we would recommend it, right? Yep, that was going to be the next question. So I'm going to roll my final thoughts into that. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, final thoughts and who would you recommend it to and would you recommend it? So I think the fact that Watchmen is, is, is like, you know, I always get annoyed when people, you know, they want to say graphic novel but not comic book or, or trade or whatever. I think Watchmen is the first graphic novel that people like talk that way about that attracted yeah. attention from people who are not comic book readers on a massive scale. I'm sure there are other books that people read at the time or before, but I'm talking about like, you know, on a massive scale. Mass culture. I think the reason for that it has a lot to do with a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. I think most comic books don't talk as deeply or as maturely about big things the way that Watchmen does. And for that reason, it makes it more palatable for people who, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily read a comic book otherwise, a week-to-week Batman story, for example. And so I think that 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 widens the scope of people that I would recommend this to uh, more than the average book that we would do a book club about. That's not to denigrate those books. I love them all. Watchmen is a little bit different than that in that I don't feel you have to read comics or have an understanding of comic book language to read this because the the paneling for example it the it's it's very easy I believe to figure out where you're supposed to go with your eyes with this comic and most comics, even me, I've been reading comics for a long time. Sometimes I pick these things up and I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. Watchmen is very accessible and penetrable, but it's also extremely deep and layered. And so I would recommend Watchmen to anyone who wants a great story. I don't think it's limited to someone who wants a great comic story. I would recommend it to anyone who wants to consume a great story. And I also want to say that I am very thankful for Watchmen and envious of anyone who got to read this when it came out because I've always appreciated that experience uh, and I'm I'm jealous. Could you fucking imagine? Could you imagine like and all the delays it went through and everything? Could you imagine like you read issue 11 and then you're like, what the fuck? Like what's going to happen next? I, I think it's pretty similar to what we're going through with uh, yeah, Doomsday it's, it's, yeah, right? <laughs> it's not a dissimilar experience to a lot that I've had, but I enjoy that experience. And so I'm envious yeah. of people who had it. I'm grateful to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons and John Higgins for creating this book. I wish that uh, we were able to, you know, that Alan was able to have good feelings about it. Uh, and he doesn't, and that sucks. But... This is a classic. I wish he had good feelings about anything hard stuff. This is a classic for a reason. Normally, I don't care much for things that people say are classic because a lot of times I think they're overhyped. I don't think this is. I love this book. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I think you said it best, Sean. Where you had just captured it. It's a it's a good story that can be captured by itself. Like you don't need anything else outside of it, and because of that, that makes it. 
a book that you can easily recommend to anybody who like this isn't for me this isn't an intro to, to comic book um for, because of the way it's laid out sure but i think content wise there's a lot to it so i think I, I don't know that this is like a first time you're gonna read a graphic novel book that i would present to somebody um, but it's definitely to somebody who has been reading and at least has an understanding for um some of the nuances uh or deeper understanding for nuances not just sort of service level comics uh and i think that you i think that you're able to jump in and digest the story for what it is um but there's more value in knowing more i think to, to get out of it at least uh and yeah i mean outside of that this is just a solid super influential story so yeah absolutely a recommendation um but again one that's tempered by whether or not you've sort of had previous knowledge and i think in 2019 most people have at least a surface level knowledge of superheroes uh being that it is prevalent in everything that we have now especially in movies so yeah overall we definitely recommend uh are we doing the rating after or now do it now a 9.5 just because of the ending <laughs> bold bold and brave marco <laughs> uh sean what, what would you rate it i guess normally i don't like to rate on these things but it's it's yeah. obviously a 10 out of 10 or an 11 or 12 or whatever it's not even it's yeah. not even to be critiqued on that level in my opinion but yeah, yeah. sure uh what about you cal where are you at on, on this who would you recommend it to and all that stuff yep yeah, I would. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This book stunk. It was real stinky. It was a real piece of poo. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, reading this book eleven years after reading it the first time was a, a pretty crazy experience. Um, it was like reading it with fresh eyes in a lot of ways, mm. and uh, that's that's kind of the beauty of really putting distance between something you like and 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 coming back to it um i i think marco your point about how pervasive superheroes are in culture in general right now is really salient because like everyone has a pretty i think everyone at this point has a pretty firm understanding of how superheroes works and so i think this book would probably make an impact on most people that would read it and i think that's clear based on its actual historical impact the last 30 years um so yeah, I, honestly, I, for, I think this is one of the few books I would say I, I would recommend to just about everyone. Um, and yeah, it's a 10 out of 10, for sure. Uh, any other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I have to do mine. <laughs> no. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, I actually don't think I could say it better than you there, Phil. Um, I, I think that I, I, I agree with Marco's point that if someone was asking me, like, I'm going to get into gra- – like, I want to get into reading comics or I want to read a graphic novel, like, what's the first thing you would recommend? I don't know that Watchmen would be it. Um, but I do think it is a book that you could recommend to literally anyone um, because of that cultural context of superheroes. Like, everybody – everybody in America anyway has a understanding of what the superhero archetype is and what it's supposed to mean. And that's all you really need to get something out of Watchmen, I think, on a, like, deeper level, you know, than, than is already there in terms of, like, psychology and 
politics and all that other stuff that appeals to anyone who would read something anyway. Um, the only reason I wouldn't recommend it as an intro to is because I think that the the craft of the art and like the paneling and all that stuff that we talked about is something that you're going to appreciate appreciate the more comics that you've read. So, like, I'd maybe say like it's a first three, but maybe not number one. Ten out of ten, though, of course. Um, yeah, even obviously, even if I think this is true for a lot of things in life, even if you don't go out looking for subtext or themes or symbols or anything like that sean made this point before you'll still appreciate this book um yep yeah it's just such a it's just such a high quality piece of work yeah um and i want to thank everyone for listening to this this book club i want to thank all of you for participating in this book club uh we do these once a month and uh if you liked this, be sure to go listen to uh, episode 161 of the Comic Spells, where we actually talk about how Alan Moore feels about this stuff. Go back and listen to our Doomsday Clock review episodes. We review each and every issue. Uh, there's been 11 so far. And listen to uh, We Watched Watchmen, our HBO review series. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you go and follow all our social media accounts, ring the bell on YouTube so that you can be subscribed to everything that we do. And um, I think that'll just about do it for us. I leave it all in your hands. Thanks for stopping by.